Good afternoon, everybody. Our next case is in re CAB. We'll hear from the appellant. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Justice Newby and Honorable Associate Justices. My name is Mercedes Chut, and I'm arguing on behalf of the appellant respondent father, um, Mr. Brian Williams. Um, Mr. Brian Williams is appealing an order terminating his criminal rights, and I will um, take 20 minutes for the main argument and reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. Now, this case um, involves a major issue of constitutional law with respect to the due process that my client was provided in connection with the termination of parental rights hearing. It also involves um, issues of whether the evidence was sufficient to support the grounds to terminate parental rights. I would like to address the constitutional argument first. Constitutional argument, just to give a quick background, um, Mr. Williams has been incarcerated since May of 2018, roughly eight months um, before the minor child in this case was born. And he was incarcerated on a continuous basis until the termination hearing in, on January the 20th, 2021. Now, Mr. Williams, um, the petition to terminate parental rights was filed on August the 28th, um, 2020. It had been set for hearing um, two times, one in, September, no, one in October, and it was continued at that time um, because uh, Mr. Williams' attorney was not available. Um, it was then it was set for hearing in December, and it was continued at that time because of COVID issues. And then it was set for hearing on January the 20th. On January the 5th, um, my client's attorney contacted the prison that he was in, which is the Beckley Federal Correction Institute in West Virginia, to try to arrange a meeting to speak to Mr. Williams in preparation for the, ter the termination hearing. He was notified at that time that the prison was on a COVID lockdown, which meant no movement during the prison, and that Mr. Williams would not be able to, to participate in the termination hearing. <coughs> the attorney then for Mr. Williams filed a motion to continue the termination hearing, reciting those, those facts and alleging, one, that Mr. Williams did need to be present to present evidence on the petition <coughs> to terminate parental rights, that he was strongly opposed to it, that he wanted to testify, and two, that his due process rights would be violated if he was not allowed to testify. Now, when the, hearing, the termination hearing um, came on for hearing on January the 20th in Alamance County, um, Mr. Williams' attorney did renew his motion, and he stated that at that time that Mr. Williams vociferously opposed the petition to terminate parental rights, and again, he needed to testify to preserve his constitutional rights. Now, at that time, the court denied the, the motion to continue um, with the finding that Mr. Williams had provided exhibits by, um, well, he had actually offered the exhibits or had served the exhibits that he was going to use at the termination hearing on opposing parties. And he had done this on November the 17th, 2020, a little over two months before the termination hearing. And the court argued that those exhibits alone were an adequate account of Mr. Williams' testimony and that his parental rights would not, that his due process rights would not be prejudiced if the court simply accepted these documentary exhibits in lieu of Mr. Williams' testimony. And um, 
Mr. Williams' attorney obviously opposed this and said he needed to testify, but the case went forward anyway. Now, the main argument I have is that the court did not properly apply the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test. So, as we all know, the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test applies whenever the state seeks to deprive somebody of an interest. And the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test, first and foremost, is, it, first of all, it's not, it doesn't impose one standard, it's flexible. The court is supposed to look at all circumstances. First, in, in the case of termination actions, in any action, first, a private interest that will be affected by the official action. Second, the risk of erroneous deprivation of such interest to the procedures used and the probable value, if any, of additional or substitute procedural safeguards. And third, the government's interest, including the function involved in the fiscal and administrative burdens of the, that the additional or substitute procedural requirements would entail. Now, in this case, and let me just back up a little bit. The Supreme Court has made it very clear that when it comes to termination of parental rights, the parent's interest is considered a commanding one. It is considered a commanding interest for the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test because parents have a fundamental liberty interest in raising their children and keeping their family intact. Um, the United States Supreme Court in the Sintoski versus Kramer has called this an interest that is more precious than any property interest. Because of that interest, the parent's interest in Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test is always going to be commanding. That is what the, court, the Supreme Court has held in Satoshi versus Kramer and in Lassiter versus Department of Social Services. However, where the state court here made a mistake is that the state's interest is not ipso facto or always commanding. I think the state came to that conclusion by a misinterpretation of N. Ray Murphy, which I'll get to. But basically, um, in Satoshi versus Kramer, the Supreme Court made it very clear and defining what the interests are for the state. The state does have a parent's patriotic interest in protecting children, and it has an interest in the economic aspects and the administrative aspects of, of, of termination proceedings. However, it does not have a commanding interest or any interest in terminating parental rights. In fact, the state has a parent's patriotic interest in trying to preserve family bonds. And, um, so therefore, it is simply not the case, as I think the trial court concluded, that the state has commanding interest in terminating criminal rights. So Toski versus Kramer made that very clear. The state's interest is in preserving family unit and protecting children. Well, the, the st or is the state's interest uh, in obtaining some form of permanence, which could include a reunion, it could include some other things, within a reasonable period of time? Right. The, state, the Supreme Court has not, has not addressed that, but the problem with what the Supreme Court looks at is the state is a parent's um, very strong interest in preserving the family unit. The state also, in Satoshi versus Kramer, has an interest in the fairness and the um, justice of the of decision, and that's what an issue here is an issue here. I think when you say that the permanency interest trumps any other interest at this level, you are basically deciding the termination petition before you even heard evidence. Well, I mean, I, I mean, my question was intended to differentiate between permanence and termination because the two are two different things under the statute, aren't they? They are two different things, correct. And, and so, I mean, the state's interest is in achieving some form of permanence within a reasonable time. 
Correct. Okay. But also, when you look at Matthews versus Eldridge balance, Eldridge balancing test, the interest is in a fair and just procedure and preserving parental bonds, not terminating parental rights. I think that what happened in this case is the trial court said the state has a commanding interest in terminating parental rights. It clearly does not. It does have an interest in permanence. But then you have to look at the actual procedure in question. And here this was a delay of five days. And, you know, all that Mr. El Mr. Um, Williams was asking for was that the court continue the hearing for five days. Now, he was not asking to be transported from West Virginia to North Carolina. Um, the hearing itself occurred on WebEx, and so he, and he actually participated telephonically in other hearings. He was asking for continuance for five days. Well, was he asking, was there any assurance? I mean, I know the, the, the lockdown was scheduled to end in five days. Was there any possibility that it might extend longer? Does the record um, shed, the record any, shed any light that. on that? Right, and that would just be speculation. Um, you know, I think the, the court actually made a finding that who knows how long the COVID pandemic right. is going to last, and I think that's speculation at that point. I mean, you know, I don't think prisons were on lockdown throughout the entire COVID pandemic. So I, mean, I think what, this, what the court needed to do, the trial court needed to do, was actually weigh the factors, not assume there's a community interest, because the case of State and Ray Murphy said there was a community interest. But you, in that case, it's a different, very different case, but you actually weigh the factors and decide what weight to give the interest of state. And here, when you have a continuance request for five days, you have no, um, no request to transfer, so the state is not incurring any money or any cost by doing that, as they were in, in Ray Murphy, and um, no evidence whatsoever as the cost to the state. I would argue the state's interest here, or the state's, the state's burden, was actually de minimis. Well, in, this I mean, in this litany of interests that you say need to be considered, where does the child's best interest fit into that? Well, the child's best interest, I mean, I think the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test is not exclusive. I mean, you ordinarily consider the factors that are outlined in that opinion. Um, so I think certainly the child's best interest is something that can be considered. But the child has an interest in, in having parental bonds preserved, if at all possible, if that's appropriate. And so do you think the child's best interest in, yeah, I've heard you in responding to Justice Servan list several interests. Is the child's best interest subsumed by some of these other interests you say, or does it stand alone? I, there's really not a good answer to that question based on case law that I've seen. <coughs> I think the Supreme Court of, of the United States has answered that in a termination action, and I don't think this court has, has answered that either. But I think, I think certainly the children, child's interest should be considered. I don't think the Matthews versus Eldridge balancing test would exclude that. In this case, the child, I mean, I think it's, our statutes say that children have a need for permanence. So I'm not arguing that's not a factor the court can take into account. I am arguing that under these narrow circumstances, because each of these cases with due process turns on their own facts, under these narrow circumstances, a continuance of five days did not significantly impact permanence. It did not have a negative impact on the child's uh, need for permanency. Are continuance motions uh, left to the discretion of the trial court to grant or deny? Um, when the continuance motion asserts a constitutional argument, such as due process, is a question for the appellate court to look at de novo. When, um, 
when you make an ordinary continuance motion, um, something like my client's not available, um, my client's sick, whatever, and you don't allege constitutional, um, don't, don't allege a constitutional argument, such as my client's due process rights, will be affected if you can't participate, as, as here, then the, the standards of abusive discretion. But I think it's pretty clear. I mean, the, the, there was a written motion here alleging a constitutional reason. <coughs> Where in the written motion is, con is, is there a reference to a constitutional? If I could find that. Um, Well, I'm sorry, um, it's, in paragraph, so it's in paragraph seven. It's in paragraph seven. seven. I'm sorry, I, yes. I missed that. So then moving on, so my argument is that, that what the state court seemed to do was, or the trial court seemed to do, <coughs> was just simply assume that there's a commanding interest without weighing the factors and determining their interest. There is clearly not, under Sintaski versus Kramer, a commanding interest to terminate criminal rights. I mean, I guess we can think of the type of society we would have if the state's policy was to terminate parental rights as opposed to reunite families. And the problem with this case, if it's, up, is, is if it's upheld, is it could stand for that proposition, a commanding interest in terminating parental rights. And the U.S. Supreme Court has said that's not a proper function for states. Well, your colleagues have argued, among other things, that uh, <clears throat> that trial counsel failed to make what amounts to an offer of proof uh, as to what he could have testified to in addition to the information that was contained in the report. I understand the argument that live testimony is better than a piece of paper, but to the extent that your motion relies on the fact that the father wasn't permitted to testify live and therefore offer evidence in addition to that that was contained in the report, what, what effect does the fact that no offer of proof was made here apparently have on our analysis? Well, that's why I, in a memorandum of additional authorities, I included the case NRA-KDL. So in NRA-KDL, um, the respondent father, um, his his offer of proof was very similar to what um, my client's attorney made, which is he strongly opposes the petition. I think in Ray KDL, the attorney says something to the effect of he's going to refute every allegation of the petition. His testimony is necessary because the court needs to hear his side of the case. That wasn't materially different than what was said in this case. And in Ray KDL, the Court of Appeals held that that was a sufficient offer of proof. Um, the Court of Appeals in NRA KDL was comparing the case to Murphy, um, and it held that that apparently that um, sort of enthusiastic desire to testify and to refute allegations was adequate. So I would argue that he made an adequate showing. And I, you also, I think, have to put this in the context of the fact that the attorney was not able to talk to his client. But, pres but presumably the attorney had... Evidently, they had worked together for some time. Well, this attorney was actually appointed to represent my client in, in the court order, I believe, of June the 15th, 2020, because what had happened was my client was deemed a non-party, 
where he had executed a relinquishment of his parental rights to his sister. So this attorney would have been um, on the case from around July, July the 15th, I believe it was, July the 15th, 2020, about six months. And it's not, the record doesn't reflect how much time he was able to communicate with his client during that six month period. And I think one thing also that's a really big problem with the due process argument is the assumption that these exhibits would, would encompass all of the information that Mr. Williams wanted to provide the court. I mean, they were prepared in, no, well, one of them, they were served in November, on November the 17th, 2020, before the hearing. They were, they consisted of a court report, which is basically the equivalent of a court report that was submitted to the court on November 4th, 2020. And then the other exhibits were a prison case plan and a prison, a prisoner status report, which are computer printouts. Um, these are, the latter two were just computer printouts. They were prepared, um, one of them was prepared on August the 5th, 2020. One of them was prepared on August the 4th, 2020. So now you're getting like five months before the termination hearing. And they're not self-authenticating documents or computer printouts. There's nothing in the record that reflects how they were going to be used by um, the respondent. Um, and they are not, I mean, they're ambiguous. I mean, you can look at them and interpret them one way. And I think the GAL brief interprets it one way that I disagree with. You can look at it and interpret it another way. And my argument there would be that's not sufficient for proof beyond, for clear and convincing evidence. Is, is while we're still talking about the, the due process balancing test, does the strength of whatever evidence the uh, department was able to produce at the hearing have any bearing on the uh, continuance issue? Well, the department is presenting its version of things. Sure. I mean, I, mean, I, think, that's, I think everybody does that. That's not, that's not, not surprising. And in this case, I think that there was, a, compared to typical termination cases, where often the file is this thick, um, you know, voluminous court, court reports, a social worker has been working for parents for years. In this case, no one had worked with Mr. Williams from the time that he relinquished his parental rights to his sister, um, which is in May of 2019, um, until um, he was reinstated as a party in um, July of 2020. So, you know, there really wasn't, in my opinion, compared to other cases I've seen, there was not much of a record developed with respect to Mr. Well, Williams. but give, for whatever record there was, is that relevant to the continuance issue? In terms of in terms of in, the terms, of, in terms of anything, I mean, you know, one of the one of the factors is the effect of the uh, lack of continuance on the reliability of the decision, or something like that. Well, I think that the social worker who presented testimony had not had the case um, until the sister who was going <coughs> to adopt uh, the child's paternal aunt had relinquished, and the social worker had only had one phone conversation with my client. The rest of it was an email. And I just simply think that they did not have very much information about what my client was doing in prison, um, what my client could have done. I mean, one thing that did not make it to my brief, but when I noticed in preparing for this, the um, social worker had actually testified when, when she was asked, um, did uh, Mr. Williams communicate with his, um, 
did he did he send cards or try to communicate with the child when the child was in the care of his sister? And she answered, not to my knowledge. And then she then said that the sister had told her that the sister had blocked the prison number. So that would indicate that he, Mr. Williams, didn't have a, a way to communicate. Um, and the social worker also said, um, and I can find where that, I think this is, the social worker also said that Mr. Williams, when Mr. Williams was in, um, Mr. Williams apparently was in the Alamance County Jail, um, or at least a county jail, until December of 2019. This also did not make it to my brief. And so the social worker, I think, it was, I think it's page 47 of the transcript, said that um, he had not had an opportunity to participate <coughs> in his case plan um, until he was moved to the federal prison. So like for the whole year of the case, roughly, he wouldn't have any opportunity to, to participate. So I think there was just scant evidence about Mr. Williams. And I think that, you know, one thing again, I mean, I don't know if this is answering your question, but to go back to Santoshki versus Kramer, um, in termination cases, the Supreme Court has recognized that parents actually have a heightened due process need. And that is because, one, vis-a-vis -vis the state, and the parents in these termination cases generally have much fewer resources than the state. Um, the <coughs> Santoshki Court also pointed out that, parent, that, that the, the um, grounds for termination and the findings that the, court, that the trial court has to make in terminating parental rights are often subjective and that that can lead to some biases. Often these parents are poor um, or low socioeconomic status. There can be biases against them. And for those reasons, there, are, there is actually a heightened due process interest. And I would argue that simply having the social worker testify um, is not adequate when you, net, when you don't have complete information about the parent. Um, in this case, the information you have stops in, the case plan stops in August of 2020, and the, uh, the um, court report stops in, I'm going to make rebuttal time too, I mean, the court report starts, stops in, um, uh, was based on information that was handed up in November, and there was just simply nothing to support the assumption that this evidence just, you know, fully encapsulated all the pertinent evidence that Mr. Williams was going to give. It's just an assumption. Should we consider uh, anything concerning the Court of Appeals case of N. Ray Murphy? Well, uh, yeah, yes, because N. Ray Murphy, the Court of Appeals, did, did do the balancing test. And what, what the Court of Appeals was looking at in Ray Murphy was a respondent father who was serving two life sentences for sexual abuse of his children that were subject to the termination proceeding. And that father wanted to be brought in, transported from his prison to the courthouse um, for the termination hearing. And the court in Ray Murphy noted that, one, it said that it was more than a de minimis cost to, to transport him. There was actually an economic cost to the state in doing that. Two, um, there was a risk of the father fleeing during the transport. If he fled, there was a risk to the public, there was a risk to the people who were transporting him. And also, and I think importantly, the father in that case, um, there was a risk that he was going to intimidate the children witnesses because they were um, witnesses that the criminal court had found he sexually abused. And so given all those factors, the court in Murphy said, or, or decided that, that the state's interest in not um, complying with that procedure was paramount. But it's not paramount in every, in, in every case. And Murphy actually weighed the interest, which is what you're supposed to do. 
under Matthews versus Eldridge. Not simply say it's, it's, it's always um, um, a, a command, the words commanding, not parent, commanding interest, but to weigh different factors, such as in the Murphy case, the parent who was serving two life sentences had to be transported a long distance, they could intimidate witnesses. In this case, there was no weighing. But one aspect about uh, weighing factors is, of course, those kinds of cases typically are fact-intensive because of the fact that every case is different. Is that case meaningfully distinguishable from the present case, or would you have us to apply it in some other way? Well, the only, I think it would be applied, applied to the extent that it does show the court performing a balancing test. It does show the court properly um, applying the Matthews versus Eldridge test and weighing different factors. This is what the court did not do here. But in terms of the facts, no, they're completely different. Mr. Um, Williams did not ask to be transported from his federal prison. Um, I, the idea was, I suppose, that he was going to participate by WebEx. And there's no question of him intimidating any witnesses. It's a very different situation. So uh, you, you would encourage us to apply it, but just see it as being distinguishable or look at it in some other way? Well, I think that it can be applied for the procedure. That in that, in that case, the, the, the appellate court de novo looked at the factors, and this, it is a de novo review with constitutional issues, and simply weighed them. And, and I think that that is what this court, I just respectfully submit, needs to do, which is simply to weigh the factors in the record to determine if they support the um, decision the trial court made and support um, the findings that, that, the, that excluding Mr. Williams from testifying and relying on these court reports satisfied due process. Would you have us to remand it for that purpose? I don't think that's necessary because I think that this court is able to decide, to know, decide those issues to, issues to novo. Um, I think it's very clear as to Nova Review. So I only have four minutes and 20 seconds left, so I think that I will reserve the rest for rebuttal. And it pleases the court. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. I'm Jamie Hamlet with the Alamance County Bar. I'm here today with my esteemed colleague, Christina Pearsall of the Guilford County Bar. It is undisputed that parents have a fundamental right to the upbringing and decision-making in regards to their children. But it is also undisputed that the government has a compelling governmental interest in the protection of children and in seeking permanency. Both, both, excuse me, both federal and state law outline that children also have commanding interest and due process rights. They have a right to protection and safety, but they also have the right to safe permanent homes within a reasonable period of time. This child is now three years old and has been in foster care all but one day of his life. TPRs are to be heard within 90 days of filing. This TPR was filed on August the 28th of 2020, and it was heard on January the 21st, 2021, 146 days after it was filed. The father requested a continuance because of a COVID lockdown. The case had already been continued twice and was well outside the 90-day time frame. Ordinarily, the denial of a continuance is reviewed as an abuse of discretion. <coughs> However, when a constitutional right is raised, it is a question of law which is fully reviewable. 
The denial of the continuance in this case was not error as the court properly weighed the Eldridge prongs. There are multiple findings of facts at the beginning of the, case, of the TPR order where the court made reasoned decisions. Finding of fact six outlines not that just the father will have exhibits admitted, but that his, the father's attorney will be present at the hearing, will be able to present evidence, cross-examine witnesses, um, and take part in the entire proceeding, preserving the adversarial process. It also indicates that both the father and the department have a commanding interest, which is what Henry Murphy says, is that the government has a commanding interest in these proceedings. The denial of continuance was not improper because the court weighed all three prongs, and it found that the risk of error was the determinative prong and that the father's attorney was fully permitted to participate in the proceeding. It's argued that the father's rights were violated because the council didn't have adequate time to prepare. But Henry DKW, there's a memorandum of additional authority submitted, indicates that when an attorney needs additional time to prepare, that he must file a motion. He must outline that material evidence will come to light if the motion is granted and that that belief is reasonably grounded in fact. That was not done in this case. There is no indication of what evidence would be presented if a continuance was granted. The father's attorney had in fact worked with his client because he provided discovery, including exhibits and a witness list prior to the December 16th scheduled TPR hearing. The, um, the father wants you to believe that his attendance was necessary to prove that he had made efforts and things had happened between the December 16th hearing and the January 21st hearing, but he also wants you to believe that he couldn't do anything, including communicate with his attorney. You can't have it both ways. He did communicate with his father. On the morning of the hearing, he called his father, not his attorney, and they talked for 30 minutes. He act, had access to writing letters, to emails. When the social worker began working with the father after he revoked his relinquishment, he sent something like six to nine emails to the social worker and then discontinued communication with the social worker, then sent an email on November the 9th, 2020, which was basically a veiled threat. So even any course of action he took while he was incarcerated had made no significant change because he was still conducting himself in the same way as prior to his incarceration. If I understood your colleague's <coughs> argument, and she's got a little bit of time to correct me if I misunderstood it, the, uh, she seems to be saying two things. First, that if the father had been permitted to be present in person, he, one, could have communicated the earnestness or the fervor with which he didn't want the uh, parental, his parental rights in the child terminated. And secondly, as you've already alluded to, some more recent developments. Uh, I mean, I, th I think I understand your argument with respect to recent developments. What's your response to uh, Ms. Chut's discussion of the, for, for lack of a better word, the fervor argument? Well, it was very clear that the father desired that his rights not be terminated, and that was communicated very clearly through his written court reports and through communications that he had with the social worker that the social worker testified to. 
Plus, we have all the prior orders and the underlying matter that were in, presented into evidence. And in those orders, the, re, the father's position was made clear. It was clear to the court that the father did not want his rights to be terminated. He had the obligation to present evidence. One of his arguments was, if I had been present, I could have talked about alternative plans of care. That argument was made in Henry Murphy. The father in Henry Murphy said, I want, it to, I want to be present to tell you that my grandmother can take pl placement. And the court said, your attorney can adequately present that. And that is a completely analogous to this case because not only were the father's written exhibits put into evidence, but his proposed placement provider, the paternal grandfather, was called by the father's attorney to testify which is therefore oral evidence. Henry A.M. discusses the fact that the court should not make decisions on written reports at, alone, but it also states that extensive oral evidence is not required. But the father had the best of both worlds. His written reports, his um, ledger of what he had done in prison, and his father testified, and his father was his proposed alternative plan of care. So his due process rights and fundamental fairness were offered, both substantive, substantive due process rights and procedural due process rights. But isn't there something missing in terms of what is intrinsically available to one who is present at the time, which is to have the respondent father to be able to, in real time, talk with his attorney on the scene concerning matters of cross-examination and strategy which cannot be readily anticipated just based upon the availability of, of paperwork by way of affidavits and, and other uh, documentary evidence. Certainly it is better, but what the court has found, and Henry Murphy is just one example, is that no parent has an absolute and unfettered right to be present. And you can be heard in multiple different fashions. There are many cases where defendants aren't present, but they are heard through their witnesses or through their defense counsel. And this case is clearly analogous to Henry KDL, which was provided in um, the appellant's um, memorandum of additional authority. In that case, the court said, yes, you know, there wouldn't have really been a big deal to have continued it a little bit longer, but there is no evidence of what the father's oral testimony or physical presence would have offered to this proceeding that wasn't offered through his attorney. And because there was no offer of proof, because there was no outline, and what the court says is Henry Murphy is So when before you move on to Henry Murphy, I would, you mentioned something I was going to ask you about anyway. Uh, does the length of time for which a continuance was sought uh, have any relevance to what we uh, are asked to decide today? If so, what is it and how should we consider it? It is a relatively short period of time. It's not like six months or something like that. So... I think when you look at logistics, saying that it was a five-day continuance is not realistic because you're not only saying, oh, the dad may be available January the 25th or afterwards, but you have to schedule the matter for court. There has to be an available court date. Um, in Alamance County, the assigned judge to the case, so the judge who has heard the underlying case, cannot hear the TPR. So you have to make sure that at the next available court date is the correct judge. You have to make sure that witnesses are available. And as the judge found at the trial court level, 
We don't know when his prison was going to come off lockdown. That was just an assumption. And so it would not have been a five-day Well, well it was more than an assumption, wasn't it? I mean, that well, was, was what was represented, I gather, by the institution to yes. the trial counsel. You're correct. Okay. The, um, the case manager at the prison stated that the, the federal prison was scheduled to come off right. lockdown. I mean, admitted, admittedly, I don't think there's any dispute that there's, of course, no, there are very few guarantees in life, and right. I don't think anybody offered a guarantee of the five days either. But, I mean, it was more than just the number pulled out of the air. Justice, I do think it absolutely is relevant, the period of time. But I also think you have to look at the period of time beforehand. And this child had been in custody for his entire life. At that point, he was two years old. And we have to look at time not only from the parent's perspective, but also the child's perspective. And it's not just a mere blink of an eye for a child when you continue something for what more likely would be a month, two months, or maybe longer because the fact we just wouldn't be able to put it back on in five days. Um, so that has to be considered as well. But I do think it is a relevant consideration. Um, I do think that the court provided fundamental fairness for the father and his due process rights were protected. Um, there's a great deal of argument about the grounds, and I think there is a lot of evidence in the underlying record about the father. Um, there is some contention made that there's no evidence that he was earning money while he's incarcerated, but there are multiple places throughout the record where it indicates that he was working while he was incarcerated. He had jobs as the kitchen worker. He had a general maintenance job. He also told the social worker directly when she spoke with him that he received a monthly allowance from his mother or other family members so that he had access to money. So he had the ability to pay more than zero. Um, and that, therefore, the child support ground is found. The, the findings of facts are very specific in the TPR order. And in re-TDP, the court has upheld that if a parent is making 40 cents to a dollar a day in the prison, they have ability to pay more than zero. And so there are very specific findings that are supported by the record that this father had the ability to pay some child support. It's also important to remember that when a parent signs a relinquishment in North Carolina, that it does not completely sever the parent-child relationship, especially if it's a specific relinquishment. When a parent signs a specific relinquishment in North Carolina, they are informed that if the adoption is not completed, that they will be notified and have the ability to revoke the relinquishment. Therefore, a parent is on notice that they continue to have responsibilities and an active duty as to this child. The appellant wants to argue that the court had no jurisdiction during the period of time after his relinquishment and before he was added as a party. And some of the cases cited are about jurisdictional issues, but they're subject matter jurisdiction. This court, the trial court, clearly had subject matter and personal jurisdiction over the father, the mother, and the child, and exercised that, and the father voluntarily removed himself from the case. By allowing the father's argument to go forward, you would be allowing parents to stop and start the time clock, which would clearly negate the purpose of Chapter 7B to give children safe, permanent homes within a reasonable period of time. In regards to the dependency ground, I think that that's an extremely strong ground in this case. There are multiple prior orders where the father's proposed plans were vetted by the court and found to be inappropriate. 
Enrique DL, the issue of collateral estoppel was addressed, and it found that those, many of those issues had been addressed in other orders. Now, the issue of collateral estoppel can go, you know, there's different cases, but they're about whether or not orders at a lower standard can be considered. But these issues were vetted, and the court found that the relatives were not appropriate. Um, there is a finding of fact number 12 in the TPR order that states the father has an extensive criminal record dating back to 1995, is in pre federal prison serving an active sentence to November 11, 2022, which, by the way, would have been 22 months from the date of the TPR hearing till the date of release, um, and that the father has no appropriate alternative plan of care. There's also a stipulation where the father agrees that on November the 20th of 2020, the court vetted the paternal grandfather and found that there were no appropriate and willing relatives and it was not in the child's best interest to um, reside with the grandfather. So the two prongs required by dependency are proven by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence that the parent is not available and that he, the parent lacks an appropriate alternative plan of care. Further, there are multiple findings of facts in the TPR order where the judge raises issues concerning relative placements. One of those would be finding of fact 42, where the trial court said, we're concerned about the care the child received while with the family and the care the child will receive if returned to the family. Um, in regards to repetition of neglect, we have to look at changed circumstances. And in this case, this father did not make extensive efforts. He had the ability to communicate with the social worker and with the child. He learned in May of 2020 that the adoption would not be completed. From May of 2020 until, um, until January when the TPR hearing was heard, he sent two letters to the child. That was in September of 2020. He made no efforts to build a relationship with the child. He was sporadic in his communication with the attorney, I mean, the social worker. He did not pay child support. And all of those things were within his ability to do, and he did not do them, showing that he was both unwilling and unable to provide care. And those same factors support the 12-month ground. We respectfully ask that the court uphold the termination of parental rights, finding that the father had fundamental fairness and due process. We ask that the court also consider the due process rights of this young child who deserves a safe, permanent home. And in thinking of that, let's remember how time passes in the eye of a child. For us as adults, Christmas seems like it's a second away. For a child, it feels like it's a lifetime away. And for this child, he has spent his whole life in foster care. And he has no appropriate biological family to take care of him. I ask that I reserve the remainder of my time for my Thank you, counsel. We'll hear further, further uh, from the appellee. Thank you. May it please the courts. Chief Justice and Associate Justices, my name is Christina Freeman Pearsall, and I represent the guardian ad litem for the child, Caleb. Um, there's been some really good discussion so far today, and I wanted to pick up on some of those issues and address the court. Um, with regard to the motion to continue, I feel like there are a couple of points I would like to stress here. First of all, um, State versus Roper was cited 
as saying of particular importance are the reasons for the requested continuance presented to the trial court at the time of the request. At this time, at that time, the off, there was no real offer of proof. It was requested. The, the excuse me. The continuance was requested, and said, "My client wants to participate," and that, according to the transcript, is essentially all that was provided. Um, and so, if that is of particular importance, I think we need to keep that in mind in this analysis. And then, with regards to the three factors and Matthews versus Eldridge. Um, I think Ms. Hamlet did a really great job of, of stressing um, the interests of the child here. If it's not just the private interest of the parent, it's also the private interest of the child. And my own personal feelings are that maybe given that, I'm not sure one in three, like in Murphy, um, would cancel each other out. That the, par the parent's interest in parenting the child and the government's interest and getting this right and establishing permanence for the child, maybe maybe they really don't weigh out, outweigh because we've we've not really included the child in that equation. And I would urge the court to consider the child's best interest and their interest in a safe and permanent home going forward. Can, um, can I just ask you about um, the father's motion to continue? He also says that the global COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, is an extraordinary circumstance. Is, is there any weight that we should give to the fact that, that this is an unusual situation due to the pandemic? And I believe that the, the hearing had been continued once before because of COVID-related concerns. Okay. And, and so why is that not a factor that we should also take into account when determining whether the due process rights were guaranteed here? I, I think that it is a factor that would be considered should be considered and I, I think that certainly COVID could be described as extraordinary circumstances um, but the rest of the statute that refers to extraordinary circumstances also says when necessary for the proper administration of justice and so in this case I think that's what takes us to the Matthews v. Eldridge uh, test and so that we weigh those three factors right but in weighing those in, in weighing whether or not it was a, a guarantee of due process, it, 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 it sounds like you're suggesting we, we should put no weight on the ability or the importance of a, of a client to be able to instruct their attorney during the hearing about um, issues that might come up, testimony that might be given that the father has um, information about that should be elicited on cross-examination or that he could contest and respond to matters that he doesn't have a, an ability to know necessarily beforehand are going to be the subject of testimony. Do we not give that some weight in, de in I, I believe yes, yes, I do believe that um, we should give that weight. But I also do believe um, that we need to give weight to other things. And one thing that has not really been discussed today is the second factor, and that's the risk of error. And the court, uh, the trial court, found that the risk of error was low in this case because the respondent father had representation. He had an attorney who was there, who was offering evidence, and who was cross-examining witnesses. And also, the father was able to submit a court report that was dated just a week before the termination hearing. And therefore, it was a, 
an opportunity to address the court where the other parties had no opportunity to cross-examine. Um, so I think, again, all of these factors are rolled into one, and um, in, my, I urge the court to find that there was a very low risk of error and actually no error in this court's finding um, and in their refusal to allow the continuance motion. I'd like to, to move on. Um, I wanted to address the five days as well. Um, it, I think we, we all have experienced this with, with COVID that uh, five days, you know, two weeks extended for many months and five days is very uncertain. And with the father being in federal prison, I think that there was uh, a, even a likelihood that regardless of the lockdown, the prison may not have cooperated and allowed him to participate at some point. And um, as has been correctly pointed out, the, the, the extensions of time permitted and contemplated in the statute have already run. And so at this point, we're on the clock. We're on the clock from the day Caleb entered foster care. And we've been two years as of the date of the TPR. So that five days might have run into 30, 60, 90. I mean, the, the, the truth is we just don't know. That's right. I mean, what we, what, we, what we know is, one, that the prison represented that the lockdown was, was to continue for five days. And then anything after that, probably either way, is pretty speculative, isn't it? Yes, I would say so. Um, Does the trial court have any obligation to try to make further determinations as to what's the expectation of the prison, or what facilities are available? Apparently this uh, father had participated in some other hearings, and so at least it was theoretically conceivable for him to participate right. in the virtual way that we all got used to in 2020 and 2021. Yes, the pleasures of the virtual world. Um, what I would suggest to this court is that allowing this continuance on the basis that this respondent father could not attend on this day creates a precedent for then going forward. So if at any time, because that father in the future could not attend, therefore we, we must continue, right? Because we've established that he has a right to be there and must always be there. So I would be concerned. Why, 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 why do you why do you say that, Ms. Pierce? All the uh, what we've got here. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's any dispute that the father was unable to participate for reasons that could not be attributed to the father once he entered the prison system. Admittedly, you could argue that if he had not engaged in conduct and allowed him to be incarcerated, to be a different story. But once he's there, there's really he's really at the mercy of the uh, prison officials. Yes, yes, and, and, and that goes further to my point that there was no guarantee he would be able to participate in the future at all, hopefully based on that past practice that he, he would have. But if at any point the court decided, well, it's not fair to the father, he's an, a necessary um, witness or a necessary participant, and we cannot go forward without him, that now 
I, I think it would be very difficult to go back on that. I think it would be very difficult to say, well, now that 90 days have run and we still can't get his participation, what do we do? In finding of fact 44, the trial court points out that um, the respondent father had, uh, the day of the hearing, had called his father and talked with him for about 30 minutes. Um, and the trial court noted that the father did not call his attorney during that time. Uh, what, if anything, are we, or how does this enter into our factoring with regard to what shutdown means and what may have been available to the respondent father? I think that's a valid point, and I think it raises a question of how dedicated possibly the respondent father was to these proceedings and, and being available, that he was able to make a phone call on that very day, but chose to call his father as opposed to his attorney, knowing that the hearing was scheduled, um, and, and showing that he did have some ability to reach out beyond the prison walls, that he was able to have communications. If I can briefly address, <clears throat> excuse me, the um, the grounds issues, I, I just I maybe have just a slightly different take on this. Um, I, I don't believe, of course, we've already established that the um, failure to support um, issue that he he had the, the obligation to support. Regardless, excuse me just a minute, I'm sorry. <coughs> Thank you. Um, but also that, you know, the, the respondent father is saying, look, you can't hold this 14 months where I had relinquished my rights. You can't hold that against me because I wasn't a party and you have no jurisdiction. And I just wanted to, to make the point that this father was still the parent. He had entered into a specific relinquishment that could have been revoked at any time. And so in 2019, pre-COVID, when he was able to take a parenting class, able to do the substance abuse assessment, two things that appear to be available based on his individualized needs plan, that he could have done those things. But because he removed himself from the proceedings, that he removed himself from jurisdiction of the court, that he should not be held responsible for that. But I think most of us would think that any parent would move heaven and earth, would be thinking of ways would be taking action because there was that possibility that he was aware, having signed a <coughs> specific relinquishment, that he, it could have been revoked at some point and, in fact, was revoked. And that goes to the obligation of paying support, but it also goes to the issue of exercising what efforts he could towards the first case plan. The first case plan, yes, 
seemed to anticipate that he would be getting out of jail and then showing his fitness as, as a parent. And it was never updated until he came back as a party. But however, there were things in his case plan that he could have done, and I would argue should have done, in the possibility that Caleb became available again, that he would revoke the relinquishment, which he ultimately did. So I would ask the court to please uphold the trial court's ruling to apply the Matthews v. Eldridge factors on the court's decision to deny the father's motion to continue and to uphold the findings of the grounds um, for termination. And thank you very much. It was an honor to be before you today. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Um, yes. So, since I only have four minutes and 13 seconds, I think I'm going to start with Justice Earl's question about is it COVID a factor? The answer is yes. COVID is absolutely a factor. So if you look at my client's case plan, when he got to the Beckley Correctional Institute, for the first time, he was able to participate in programs that were in his case plan. The, there's no evidence in the record that my client could have participated in these programs before he got to Beckley. In fact, the social worker said as much. He did not have access to the programs that he needed, such as parenting program, substance abuse program, until he got to Beckley, which was in December of 2019. Now, those programs were interrupted because of COVID. And under the ground um, uh, 7B1111A2, the definition of willfulness is whether the person could have made more of an effort than they did, had the ability to make the effort, but chose not to. There's no evidence he chose not to make the effort. He could not participate in the programs before he got to Beckley, and then COVID shut them down, and that's indisputed. In terms of um, Justice Earl's comment about isn't it important, and I don't mean to, hopefully I'm paraphrasing this accurately, but isn't it important <coughs> for the judge to be able to observe the person when they testify to get some sort of read on their character? Isn't, you know, isn't that, and also isn't it important for the parent to be able to participate in the defense by conferring with the attorney during the termination hearing? That one of the cases that I added in my uh, memo of additional authorities does discuss that in great detail. It's a case uh, that was entered in 2020 by the Supreme Court of Washington, NRAMB, and the Supreme Court of Washington does make that point. That, and the Supreme Court of Washington, actually, in that case, it looks at other, other states. So many, many other states hold the same thing, in essence, that the person, the parent, needs to have the idea to participate by hearing the evidence. If you don't hear the evidence, if you're not there, if you can't talk to your attorney, it really takes something away from the, term, from the, from the process. Um, now, just going quickly to some of the grounds that were touched upon. One, um, 1111A3. So one important thing to note that is not in my brief, is that the, or it is in my brief, but not emphasized in that, under that, argue, that section, is that the trial court in the dispositional hearing, the disp dispositional order, the first one, in March of 2019, um, said that, or found that, ordered that actually, it's in the decree, that my client did not have the ability to pay child support. And so therefore, he was excused from paying child support. That order was in effect, well, actually, the order was never um, specifically rescinded. One might argue it was implicitly rescinded when, um, in the, the hearing of August of 4th, 2020, when the court approved the new case plan. Um, in terms of 
The jurisdictional argument, I did cite a case where there was not subject matter jurisdiction, and the court said that all these orders um, that existed in that case are not valid. We're not, we can't terminate criminal rights based on 12 months. We didn't have a valid order bringing the child into care. I'm not arguing there's no subject matter ju- jurisdiction, but I am pointing out here that when someone has made a party, the court does not have juri- the court cannot order a non-party to do anything. And so and the question remains, so what can, you know, for the 12-month ground, that's always um, measured by what type of progress uh, the parent makes on a case plan. And the first case plan that was entered required him to get housing and to find a job. Obviously, he couldn't do those things. And there's no reason to conclude that, that first case plan was in existence um, after he became a non-party. The, the trial court made a finding that he was a non-party. Um, child support, basically, he did what he could. But the, the new case plan, any order to, to, to provide the care for the child, would have started in July of 2020, six weeks before the termination hearing. So my time is running out. Um, I do ask that this court um, reverse on the issue of the due process issue and also because there is not sufficient evidence to support the grounds. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone. Clerk.